Good morning. Uh, we're going to continue through uh, Richard Sibbs' The Bruised Reed and Chapter 7. We're going to dive right into Chapter 7. There's a lot to get in here, get into here as uh, Sibbs in Chapter 7 gives more help for the weak, help for the smoking flax, as he calls it, those who feel like their faith is just an ember about to be snuffed out. And so Chapter 7, the main... The main uh, topic or space that he devotes uh, his writing to is four objections that people might give when they are struggling spiritually. Uh, Four things that the smoking flax might say. So let's get right into what he says. The first one he says is that some question their faith because they do not have full assurance. So some question their faith because they do not have full assurance. In other words, uh, they might say, well, I I must not be saved or I can't be saved because I'm not sure that I'm saved or I don't feel that I'm saved. I don't feel this grace or love that you all always talk about in church. Now, let me put that as a question for you. Uh, What do you think about this? Can Can a person have faith and not have assurance? Or is assurance a part of faith? It's a tough one, isn't it? Walt. Okay. So you can have a true sense of faith, though you're immature in that, and as you grow in maturity, you become more assured. Okay. Anybody have any other thoughts? Tony? Okay, so thief on the cross maybe did not have much assurance. You're right, that's what you're saying. Or no assurance, you're saying? Just going to try this and just throw my life onto Christ and see if he can save me. Okay. Pastor Sarver? Yeah. Right. So Heman, we'll mention that a little bit in Psalm 88. Sibs, or not Sibs, but we'll we'll talk about that in in a minute. Yeah. So he was a believer, and yet he had felt absolute darkness. Well, all good, all good answers. Um, So for some people, you might think it's a silly question to even ask, because maybe for yourself, you struggle with assurance. And so maybe to you, the answer is, well, of course, you can have genuine faith and not have assurance, because that's, that's my life. That's what I experience so often. Uh, But it does get to the question of what is true faith? Can you be a Christian unless you're sure that you're a Christian? Um, If you're not sure that you're a Christian, are you really a Christian? That's kind of the question. What is faith and how much faith do you need in your own faith, maybe we could say, uh, to be a true believer? Um, So maybe some of you, maybe this was like back in youth group days, if you were part of a youth group or something, but maybe you've played the trust game. Or you know what the trust game is. Uh, The trust game is where uh, you have a few people behind you, 
and they are supposed to catch you, and you have to lean back, right? So you have to lean back all the way to let yourself fall, and you can't bend your knees, you can't catch yourself, and so it's called the trust game because you're trusting those people to catch you. So you lean all the way back, and those people catch you. And uh, at least my growing up in youth group, this was the illustration of faith. This is what faith is. You either have faith or you don't. You either trust God or you don't. So you're leaning back. You are putting your life into those people's hands, sort of, but basically that's what you're doing, or, or you're not going to do it. And so that's, I think, sometimes what people think of as faith, very black and white. You even see this, um, sounds like this in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so there is a sense in which faith is related to assurance. But does that mean what if you have a bad day? Or what if you have these constant nagging thoughts about your own faith? Are you, are you leaning all the way back? Are, are you sort of hedging your bets, bending your knees? Well, yeah, I, I, I do have faith in Christ, but I don't really want to acknowledge, uh, give, give everything to him. So that's the question that Sibs is talking about. Questioning their faith because they don't have full assurance. Well, Sibs's answer is this that the fairest fire can have smoke in it. The fairest fire can have smoke in it. So in other words, yes, you can be a believer, though your faith has smoke in it. You have little assurance. He also uses this interesting image of garlic. So maybe you're familiar with this. You, you uh, press garlic. You put that garlic into your garlic press and your hands start to smell like garlic, and uh, maybe you go to wash off that garlic press, and what does it smell like? It smells like garlic. And so he's using this as an image that Christians have that garlic of sin that is always with us. And so a true Christian with true faith can still have that smell of garlic, that sin that still remains in him. And that's what causes this struggle with assurance. So, um, in the Westminster Confession, in chapter 18, in the Second London Confession, the same wording, now chapter 18 is on assurance, and they have this statement in the third paragraph. And and I bring up the confession just because, uh, you know, these guys make us think about things that we don't usually think about. And this is one of those things. But here's a statement. This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. So at the beginning of the chapter, they say that there is some kind of assurance that goes with faith. Right? So if you are a true believer, you are going to believe something. You know, at the very least, I, I do believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. So you're going to believe something about Christ as your Savior. But 
Then it says, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. And that word so is important. So apparently at Westminster, when they're coming up with this, they spend hours, hours and hours debating. Can we put that word so in there? What does it mean to say it does not so belong to the essence of faith? Well, so means quantity. So means quantity. So my kids say, Dad, how are you doing? And I say, I'm tired. And they say, well, Dad, even if you're tired, can you help me with the project? I can say, yes, yes, I'll help you with the project, even though I'm tired. But then they say, Dad, can you wrestle with me? I say, no, I can't wrestle because I am so tired. So, so tired, you know, is different from tired. And so means quantity. So with assurance, what the confessions are saying is that you can have some assurance that is linked to your faith. If you have faith, you should have some assurance that you believe Jesus Christ is Savior. But it does not so belong to the essence of faith. It's not in such great quantity, we could say, that it belongs to the essence of faith that you could never have any doubts, that you can never have your faith shaken. That's what that paragraph goes on to say. So that's what the confession is saying. That's what Sibs is also saying. And as Pastor Sarver mentioned, in the confession, they link to Psalm 88 as one of those and uh, we're not going to have time to look at all of Psalm 88, but it was written by a man named Heman, and he was a Levite, and he was a director of the choir in the temple. And so it's clear that this man is a believer. His, his life is full of evidence of faith, and yet he writes Psalm 88, where at the end of the psalm he says, Darkness is my only companion. Darkness is my only friend. And so many other psalms, they have the struggle of faith, and yet usually David, he'll end his psalm with something like, yet I will hope in you, or yet I will look to you, yet God will be my salvation, or something like this. Uh, but Psalm 88 doesn't end like that. He just says, darkness. I think, actually, darkness is the last word in that psalm. Uh, so he ends feeling abandoned by God. But we can say assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith that a believer can't feel the way Heman feels in Psalm 88. So don't link your true faith with having full assurance. That's what Sibs is saying. Don't question whether you have any faith at all just because you lack some assurance. Now he goes on to the next objection. Second, a smoking flax, a struggling believer might say, well, he, here's the way he says it on page 49, in weakness of body, some think grace dies because their performances are feeble. Their spirits, which are the instruments of their soul's actions, being weakened. So in weakness of body, your spirit is weakened. 
or in weakness of body, you think that your grace is dying because your performances are feeble. So in other words, you're not able to do a lot or your, your body affects you in ways that affect you spiritually. And so then you come to these conclusions about your spiritual state or your, your level of maturity and faith because of the weakness of your body. Sometimes we do forget how much our body and our souls are related. We have to remember that human beings are made with soul and body. You know, when God created you in the womb, it's not like he created this uh, baby and then maybe after six months or eight months, he injected some soul into you and you became a soul within a body. It's also not like, I think it's Mormons who, who believe this, that we're these eternal souls, pre-existent souls just floating out in some other dimension or space or something. And uh, then God creates a body for that soul. Uh, so that's not Christian theology. We believe that when God creates you, at the exact same time as he creates the unique you, you are both a body and a soul. Right now, when we die before the return of Christ, our souls go to either heaven or hell, and our bodies are in the ground. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, he says this is like our souls being naked. He talks about this, this tent, this dwelling over his soul, and he, he says he longs to be fully clothed. So in other words, when you die, you're, you're a Christian, your soul goes to heaven, but you long for something even better. You long to be fully clothed with your body. And so for eternity in the new heavens and new earth, our souls will be reunited to our bodies when Christ returns. And we will exist forever as a body and a soul. So all of that is to say that you need to remember that you are a human being with a body that affects your soul. Now, can you think of some ways? Can you mention some ways that bodies affect us spiritually? How you feel affects you spiritually? What do you think? Can you give any examples? How do you feel at 2.30 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon? If you eat too much, if you have too much sugar, if you don't sleep enough, how does that affect you spiritually? So you might genuinely want to hear the word of God, you love the word of God, you love the preaching of the word of God, but you're 75 years old and you just ate a bunch of food and it's really hot and you just want to fall asleep. That doesn't mean you don't love the word of God. Or uh, let's say you don't get much sleep. Does that make you more grumpy? Are you grumpy when you don't sleep as much? Or when your body is constantly in pain? You know, if you're constantly having all this nagging pain in your body, does, 
Does that affect the way you treat people or talk to other people? Many more examples we could give. Your body affects you spiritually. So um, again, so should you conclude that uh, you don't love preaching or that you know, you're just a really angry person because, because you didn't sleep a lot last night and so you're grumpy today. So that makes you an angry person. Should you conclude that? Well, not necessarily, because our bodies have impact on who we are spiritually. So as it relates to these things, the weakness of our body could be related, or the, could relate to why our faith is weak, why we feel little love for God. Some of it sometimes is being tired or being stressed and under pressure. Sometimes we're spiritually lazy because we're physically lazy. Uh, so, for example, Jonathan Edwards, he, would, he was very meticulous about everything that he ate. He would not eat anything that would make him sleepy or groggy because he said, you know, he's a very intellectual guy. He wanted all his thoughts all the time to be on the glory of God and, and studying the word to be able to think as clearly as possible. And so he said, I'm not going to eat anything that will make me groggy mentally. And so sometimes if we, we eat like that, or if we're physically lazy, then it leads to our spiritual laziness. So we need to consider all these things. Psalm 103, verse 14 says, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So if you have spiritual struggles, if you have weak faith, consider God knows your frame. He knows your dustness. And so he takes that into account when he thinks about you and maybe your, your lack of things that you're doing, your lack of the spiritual disciplines. Sibs says, God regards the hidden size of those who lack abilities to express themselves outwardly. God knows the intentions of our hearts and our souls. Now, of course, we don't always just want to blame the body and blame the brain and, and say we don't have any responsibility. We, we should work on those things. We should pursue uh, improvement and discipline and all those things, right? You don't just blame that, oh, I'm just dust. I just, God, God's going to know my frame, right? It's not an excuse, but God considers that and he helps us as we work on those things. Okay, so that's the second objection. Maybe it's weakness of body, you're, you're lacking ability to do things. Third, here's what he says on page 50. A third objection from the smoking flax. Some are haunted with hideous representations to their imaginations and with vile and unworthy thoughts of God, of Christ, of the word, which as busy flies disquiet and molest their peace. I'm sure you've experienced a busy fly flying around your head and in the room, constantly disquieting and molesting your peace, always annoying you and distracting you. Well, he says, spiritually speaking, we can have hideous representations in our imaginations of vile thoughts of God, 
that haunt us like that busy fly that won't go away. Negative thoughts about God haunting us. Now, Sibs spends a lot of time on this one, and so we'll spend more time on this one. This is an important topic, and you know, it's like you don't hear many people talking about this topic. What What do you do with these vile thoughts of God that might fly through your head? I told you last week about William Cooper and his dream or vision where he heard the voice of God condemning him. That's one example of this. But I want to use another example today of John Bunyan. John Bunyan was another one who at different times struggled with spiritual depression. And his depression, spiritually, where his lack of assurance was, he was haunted by these thoughts. He had these blasphemous thoughts of God, and they would come into his head, and they would not go away. It makes you wonder if there was some sort of uh, mental illness with him, as there was with William Cooper, because these thoughts just were constantly at him. Let me give you two examples. This is quoting John Bunyan. He says, For about the space of a month, a very great storm came down upon me, which handled me 20 times worse than all I had met with before. It came stealing upon me, now by one piece, then by another. First, all my comfort was taken from me, then darkness seized upon me, after which whole floods of blasphemies, both against God and Christ and the scriptures. These floods were poured upon my spirit to my great confusion and astonishment. These blasphemous thoughts were such as also stirred up questions in me against the very being of God and of his only beloved Son, as to whether there was in truth a God or Christ or not, and whether the Holy Scriptures were not rather a fable and cunning story than the holy and pure word of God. So you see how he's describing these, these thoughts of absolute denial of God and Christ and the scriptures. Here's another example from his words. One morning, as I did lie in my bed, I was, as at other times, most fiercely assaulted with this temptation to sell and part with Christ. This wicked suggestion kept running in my mind. Sell him, sell him, sell him, sell him, as fast as a man could speak. Against which also, in my mind, as at other times, I answered, No, no, not for thousands, thousands, thousands. At least twenty times together I said this. But at last, after much striving, even until I was almost out of breath, I felt this thought pass through my heart, Let him go if he wants to. And I thought also that I felt my heart desperately consent there too. John Bunyan, a, a great Christian and man of God, and yet these thoughts in his head depart with Christ, let Christ go. And he, he says his heart consented in those moments. And so maybe this type of thing has happened to some of you. These imaginations, these thoughts, dreams maybe, thoughts of 
these horrible things. So can a Christian have those thoughts? Sibs tells us, first of all, we're not necessarily guilty for those thoughts. He says that on page 50. And we'll come back to that. Not necessarily guilty. But these thoughts can come as temptations from Satan. So let's look for a few minutes at James chapter 1 and look at temptation. James 1, verses 14 and 15. We'll start with verse 13, uh, 13 to 15. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And James's point here is to say that God's not the tempter. Um, and so James is focusing on how temptation uh, is latched onto by our own desires. And so when you sin, don't blame God, blame your own desires, blame your sinful desires. That's what James is getting at in this passage. Uh, but I think there's one more step, and it's not that it contradicts James, but James doesn't mention a first step. And uh, I think I'll try to explain as, as we go why I think that's, this is biblical, though James doesn't say it. But there's a first step, and it's what I would call external temptation. So James is just focusing on an internal temptation, but I think there's also external temptation that comes before that. And uh, Satan brings along external temptations. So as an example, you're driving down the road and you see this big sign that says Powerball, 1.3 billion. Now, hopefully, you see that big sign and you shrug your shoulders and you move on with your life. Okay, I don't really care about the Powerball. I'm not going to be involved in that. Um, and so it's easy for maybe you to resist that temptation. But that's an external temptation. The sign that says Powerball 1.3 billion. Now, what James would say is that after that, if you have a desire, a sinful desire for riches, you would be, in verse 14, lured and enticed by your own desire. So you see that Powerball, 1.3 billion, and your heart latches onto that and bites the hook and you say, oh yeah, I wanna try that. And so that desire then is conceived and gives birth to sin, verse 15. Now, when James calls sin, I think he just means the practice of sin, the actual deed of sin. So I don't think he's saying that 
the desire to sin is okay. And this gets us, this is very relevant for today, this, in our day. This is, this is uh, what people are all debating about in Christian circles about, is it okay to desire sin even if you don't sin? Uh, I don't think that's the point James is making. He's just saying that the desire for sin leads to the practice of sin. You go and buy the Powerball ticket. That's the practice of sin. And then when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. You become a, maybe you become a gambling addict. You throw all your money away. So that's what James is saying with the Powerball. Now what about John Bunyan and those thoughts? I think we can say that sometimes those awful thoughts could be Satan's external temptations. The Powerball billboard being placed in front of you, the part and sell with Christ, that's Satan. And you can have the lure, the enticement of that, or you can reject that and go on in that process of sin that James is talking about. Now, some of you might think, well, well, I'm not, I'm not too sure about that. Um, is it really all just Satan? Well, remember I said we're not necessarily guilty of those thoughts, but sometimes it could be that those thoughts are because there is a desire in our hearts. And out of a desire in our hearts, and Satan knows, Satan doesn't know our hearts, but he, he knows a lot about our lives. But Satan might know that he can bring this external temptation, and, and this is what is going to lure your heart in particular. And so I'm not saying we can always absolve ourselves, but we can say that a true Christian might have these thoughts just as an external temptation. And sometimes there might even be that enticing desire from within that Satan uses. So Sibs talks about this on page 51, on this part about our hearts. He says, and if there were no devil to suggest, yet sinful thoughts would arise from within us, though none were cast in from without. See, he's making the same distinction, thoughts from outside or thoughts from within. So he says, we have a mint of them, like a mint of producing money. Uh, that's in our hearts to have these thoughts. These thoughts, if the soul dwells on them so long as to suck from or draw from them any sinful delight, then they leave a more heavy guilt upon the soul. They hinder our sweet communion with God. They interrupt our peace. And they put a contrary relish into the soul, disposing it to greater sins. So he's certainly warning us about dwelling and drawing and delighting in those thoughts. Um, but he does say that they might come within us. Now here's why I think that we can, I can make the case that there's external and internal temptation. Think about Jesus. I don't know if you want to answer this out loud, but you can try if you want. Did Jesus experience James 1.14? So think about that. Did Jesus experience James 1.14? Chris. No. <laughs> Good. Good, because you're preaching this passage in two weeks. Uh, so no, 
Jesus was never lured and enticed by sinful desires. Was Jesus truly tempted? That's an easier one. Was he? Yes. <laughs> so Jesus was truly tempted, but never lured and enticed by his own desires, uh, sinful desires. So that has to mean, doesn't it, that there's a difference. Satan comes externally to Jesus and shows him the kingdom of the world and all these things. That's the external, right? That's the Powerball sign. And uh, even the, the thoughts similar to what Bunyan had. Jesus was tempted to bow down and worship Satan and to not worship God, to forsake God. But there was nothing in his heart that was enticed by that temptation. So, uh, all that to say that I think there is some comfort in that. That if you hate those blasphemous thoughts, if you don't want them, then throw them out and say, this is not what I desire, this is not enticing to me, I don't, I don't want to think that way about God. Rather than starting to worry that maybe uh, there's something wrong with my faith. Sibs talks about Christ. He says, there is a difference between Christ and us in this case. Because Satan had nothing of his own in Christ, his suggestions left no impression at all in his holy nature. But as sparks falling into the sea were presently, uh, Christ's temptations were presently quenched. But when Satan comes to us, he finds something of his own in us, which holds correspondence with us. And so just like Christ, the, the answer is, let those temptations fall like sparks into the sea. Every opportunity for sin, we want it to be not enticing to us, but sparks falling into sea. First piece of advice Sibs gives is to flee to Christ with these thoughts. If you have those thoughts, flee to Christ right away. Confess them. Ask him for help. The second piece of advice he gives is he says we can profit from these experiences because they force us to want to have good thoughts about God. So you can use this for good, to turn your mind to think good thoughts about God more often. He says on page 52, it is good to profit from this, to hate this offensive body of death more, and to draw nearer to God as Asaph did in Psalm 73. And so to keep our hearts closer to God, seasoning them with heavenly meditations in the morning, storing up good matter so that our heart may be a good treasury, while we beg of Christ for his Holy Spirit to stop that cursed issue and to be a living spring of better thoughts in us. The very irksomeness of these thoughts yields matter of comfort against them. They force the soul to all spiritual exercises, to watchfulness, and a more near walking with God, and to raise itself to thoughts of a higher nature. So take the opportunity to take those thoughts as an opportunity to store up your mind with good thoughts of Christ, the Word of God. Then his last piece of advice, take comfort in Christ's power over Satan. Sib says, Christ will command him to be gone from us when it shall be good for us. 
he must be gone at a word. And Christ can and will likewise in his own time rebuke the rebellious stirrings of our hearts and bring all the thoughts of the inner man into subjection to himself. All right, one last point of the, the four objections. So number one, question your faith because you don't have full assurance. Number two, because of the weakness of your body. Number three, because of blasphemous thoughts that Satan might bring to you. Number four, uh, consider that the more smoke of corruption doesn't necessarily mean you're now worse. So if you see more sin in you, don't assume that necessarily it's because you now are more sinful. He says, like the dust can be seen when the sun shines through the window. The reason you're seeing all that sin in your life could be because the spirit is shining more into your life. Second, it could be that because you are growing in faith, you're fighting more against sin, and so sin is fighting back harder. Like when you, he says, corner sin. You put sin into a corner, it's going to react more strongly. And so that might be another reason you see more sin in your heart. So he says, though it, the sin is cumbersome in the conflict, yet it is comfortable as evidence. Evidence actually of growing faith, not less faith. Let's pray then. Let's pray for God to help us with these things. Our God, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect Savior and perfect Redeemer. Thank you for your patience with us in Christ. And we marvel at Christ's grace for sinners and how he continues to deal with those who are so full of such smoke that might uh, sting the eyes, and yet he comes to us and he helps our faith. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in us, direct our thoughts to you, direct our hearts to be full more of love for you and less of love for sin and the desires of this world. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, continue to help us and fill our minds with thoughts of your glory as we worship you today, as we sing together, as we hear your word more and more. May you use these as avenues for your people to become more like Christ, to grow in faith, deepen our assurance of your love. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.